Now, as people, we all know what it's like to receive a promise and then to kind of wait for the fulfillment of that promise. Or sometimes you wait and you realize that the promise goes unfulfilled and broken promises. And, and we all know that tension, right? You know, as a child, uh, oftentimes it's just the promise of Christmas. You know, you know it's coming and, you know, as soon as Thanksgiving hits, you're just excited and you can't wait for that day for the promise of Christ- Christmas to be realized. As you grow older, you know, maybe it's the promise of a career and life as you graduate high school and what's next and all of that. Uh, Sometimes it's the promise of a spouse and, you know, there's that engagement period and there's the promise of the wedding day. And as Christians, we all live with the promise that Jesus has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And so there's this promise of heaven. And so the question, though, sometimes becomes, well, how do you live between the promise and the fulfillment of it, and the reality of it, between the promise and the promised land. And so this morning, I want to kind of tackle that and ask that question as we go to Joshua chapter 2, okay? Joshua chapter 2, all 24 verses. Let's go and check it out. Uh, It reads, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, a spy, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the women had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the forge, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who devote, who, do, who, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. 
But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him about all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given us all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So as we enter this passage, it's important just to be on the same page here and and just a little context. Uh, The Israelites, the Hebrews, they had been promised land, land that they had not yet taken possession of, land that they had not yet conquered. And so this is that time when they were about, when they're going into the land to begin to possess the land. And that's, that's the big picture. But you know, sometimes when you hear like the big picture of something, it, it might evoke some response, some emotion, some thoughts. But then when you hear like the personal details of how that conquest happens and how it affects individuals, well, then it can uh, evoke an entirely different response entirely. So, for instance, if, if I just mention World War II to you this morning, like, some images might come to mind. You might think of Hitler. You might think of FDR. Uh, you might think of the Nazis, uh, the Normandy beaches, something like that. Maybe a movie you watched or a book you read. Maybe a family member who was involved with that. But if I say to you, the diaries of Anne Frank... Well, that evokes an entirely different set of emotions, right? If you're familiar with her story and this teenage girl who was holed up in this tiny little room in Amsterdam before she was captured and brought out and then executed in a concentration camp, right? That's, that's a different level of response entirely. And so as we enter this story and we're talking about the prostitute Rahab, her story is kind of like that. It's one thing to think about the conquest of the land. But when you think about how that conquest impacted the story of Rahab and her character and who she is and what she did, well, that's a whole different range of emotions that helps us see just what was going on in in her life, kind of behind the scenes. And so we read that this morning. And what we read is that Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to begin to scout out the land. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that 40 years before this, two other spies were sent in to scout out the land. And at that time, when those spies went in to scout out the land, they, they, said, they were basically saying, okay, we know that God has promised us this land, but this seems really dangerous. Like, should we obey God or not? And so the two spies, they go into the land, they're checking things out, And they come back, and they're terrified, and they report to the Hebrews, hey, there's no way we can try to take on the Canaanites. I don't care what God has said. Like, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. They're going to eat us alive. We can't do this. And so they don't. And so for 40 years, they basically toil around in the wilderness in disobedience. That's what's happened. Now, this time, Joshua, he sends two more spies into the land, but this time is different. Because this time, they're not asking the question, should we obey God? That's already been determined. They already know they're going to obey God. Now the question is, 
really more one of military strategy. Like, how should we go ahead and begin to conquer the land? How, what should we do to go about to possess the land? It doesn't matter how big the Canaanites are. It doesn't matter how numerous the Canaanites are. We know we're going to take them on. It's just, how should we go about it? And so that's what the spies are in there to do, to kind of discern. And when they go in there, you know, they are spies after all. So I imagine they try to disguise themselves somewhat, try to blend into the crowds. But, you know, they're Hebrews. And so their beards, they look just a little bit different. Their complexion is just a little bit different. When they speak, they sound just a little bit different. And so the Canaanites send word to the king and say, King, we've got Hebrews in Jericho. And we know from Rahab, when she talks to the spies, that, well, the Canaanites, they've been keeping tabs on the Hebrews. Right? She's able to recount all the history of, of the Hebrews and how God has shown up numerous times for them. And so it's likely that the king had been keeping tabs on what the Hebrews were doing. And so he probably knew that they were camped outside the walls of Jericho, beyond the fjords of the Jordan. And he's, he's looking at this, and he even knows somehow that those spies ended up at Rahab's place. And so he sends his emissaries under his banner on his behalf to Rahab's place. Now, it's important to note, okay, that some Jewish writers and Christian writers have tried to massage Rahab's place a little bit, okay? They say, well, you know, she's more or less like an innkeeper, all right? You could go there and you could spend the night, and you probably could. You could go there and you could get a hot meal, and you probably could, but make no mistake, Rahab is not running a bed and breakfast, okay? She's running a brothel, right? The Hebrew, the, the Greek, they make it very clear she's a prostitute. This is who she is. And the guy's there. They're at her place. Now, it doesn't mean we need to assume any kind of nefarious intent on their behalf, right? They they more than likely just, hey, this is the first place they came to, or they see, like, oh, well, this is a strategic place to hide out because it's on the backside of the wall, so maybe it provides a way of escape. Whatever reason, I don't think you need to assume anything bad about the intention of the spies here, that this is where they end up, but this is where they end up. And the king goes or sends people on his behalf under his banner and question Rahab and say, Rahab, there's spies. There's two men. We know, we know they were here. And they're trying to scout us out. They're trying to determine what they can, like who we are, what we're about, so that they can take us over. Where are they? Bring them out. And Rahab, she says, well, yeah, we had, I had two guys here, but I didn't know where they were from. You know, I had no idea where they were from. In fact, you know, right before the gate shut or was about to shut, they, they went on their way. I think they went that way. You know, if you hop on your horse and tear out of here as fast as you can, I'm sure you can overtake them before they reach the fords of the Jordan. Now, Rahab's lying through her teeth the whole time, right? I mean, she's lying through her teeth to the king. Do you see the irony here? I mean, here's Rahab, a Canaanite Gentile prostitute, lying through her teeth to the king. She's risking death if he finds out about this. Why? To protect two Hebrew spies. Why would she do that? In fact, if you were one of those spies, and you know, they must have been somewhat nervous as they're up there hidden among the stalks of flax, 
and then you hear the footsteps coming up the stairs, like you're probably listening and counting, okay, I think that's just one set of footsteps, right? Yeah, that's all I'm hearing, one set of footsteps. At the same time, you might be wondering, is I really hope it's Rahab. I sure hope it's not like one of the king's men who is coming to get us. And you're kind of, you know, they probably have that tension. And sure enough, it's Rahab. And then at the same time, when Rahab's there and she begins to speak, they must have been wondering, why would you do this for us? I mean, why would you risk your life in order to protect us? It almost doesn't make sense. Like, why would you do this? And then she begins to talk. And one of the things that we understand about Rahab is that she believes in the God of the Hebrews. I mean, she begins to say, like, oh, I know all about your God. I know what he's, I know what he's done, how he's delivered you uh, through the Red Sea, how he parted the Red Sea when you escaped Egypt. I know, I know about what he did through you when you came up against the kings of the Amorites and how y'all defeated Sihon and I. I know, I've heard all about this. Like, why would she do this? See, in this moment, as she lies through her teeth to protect the Hebrew spies, what's happened? Her fear is replaced with faith. Like you would expect her knees to buckle, her voice to quiver, and when she's questioned, she's, okay, yeah, I tried to hide them, but here they are. You know, I, I just want to live. That, that's kind of what you would expect. She doesn't do that. Here she is. She stands strong uh, in order to provide lodging and protection for these spies. How do you live between the promise and the promised land? Now, I recognize that the promise was not for Rahab yet, but there's something here for us, and it is replace fear with faith. You replace fear with faith. The spies did that, you know. The spies, they're not scouting out the land this time thinking, should we obey God or not? They've already determined they're going to obey God. That's why they're there, okay? They're, they're acting faithfully now. And the same thing is true for Rahab. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, the prostitute Rahab provided lodging and safe passage for the Hebrew spies. Fear would have said, no, no, you can't stay here. You're putting me, you're putting my entire family in jeopardy here. There's no way. This is not safe. This is dangerous. And faith says, you know what? Actually, the bigger risk is not to protect the people of God. See, fear focuses on the here and now. Fear becomes overwhelmed. Fear says, I can't possibly do that. Fear backs down. Fear gives up. But when God's grace comes charging through into the heart of a person, well, that fear is replaced with faith. And faith doesn't look simply at the here and now, but faith looks at what is to come. Faith is not overwhelmed. Faith trusts. Faith doesn't say, oh, I could never possibly do that. Faith says all things are possible with God. Faith does not give up. Faith rises up and presses on. It's easy to become fearful when you are in this waiting for the promised land. But by God's grace, faith comes and inspires us to act in, in places where ordinarily we just simply shrink back. It causes us to rise up. And as, faith, as, as Rahab was, was talking, and you see this faith uh, just exhibited, she talks to the spies, because she talks about their God and what he's done. And you get the idea that Rahab, she has faith in this Hebrew God. You know, is she a worshiper yet? I mean, who knows? Like, to what degree does she even know how to worship him? She didn't have a copy of the Old Testament scriptures. All she has are stories. 
But based on those stories, she says, I know that your God is the God of the heaven above and of the earth below. And it's also very interesting because when she says God, that you, you can't really catch this in English, but in the Hebrew, she uses the word Yahweh, okay? Yahweh is not just a generic term for God. It's the Hebrew term for the Hebrew God, okay? Here, the Gentile Canaanite prostitute using the Hebrew term for the Hebrew God, declaring that, yes, he alone is God, God of the heavens above and of the earth below. It's an incredible declaration of faith. And she says, I know that God is going to give you this land. And that's why our hearts are melting within us. It's not just me, all the Canaanites, we all recognize it. If God's with you, we're toast. Because he's going to give you this land. And so that's the type of faith that she has. Now, notice too, she's talking about events that took place 40 years ago. Okay, The parting of the Red Sea, the defeat of the Amorite kings. These are not events that happened like last week or last year, 40 years ago. She might not have even been alive 40 years ago, but she's heard the stories. And this shows you what the Canaanites are also thinking about this God. But she's heard these stories and she knows, man, he's, he's real. He is real. Now, it made me think for a moment that she's talking events that took, about events that took place 40 years ago. Now, 40 years ago, was about the same time that those other two spies went into the land. And when they went into the land, they saw how numerous the Canaanites were, and they saw how big the Canaanites were, and they said, we're like grasshoppers compared to the Canaanites. What she is saying is, yeah, us Canaanites, we're looking at you Hebrews, but we're not really looking at, your he at you Hebrews. We're looking at the God of the grasshoppers, and we're shaking in our sandals because we know how big and how strong and how powerful your God is. And if he's with you, man, we're, we're toast. You see, they have a greater belief in the Hebrew God than the Hebrews had in their own God. But th this is where they're at. But understand, for the Canaanites, it's, it's not so much faith. It's, it's simply just fear. Because they're not going to act. It's not like they're going to, okay, the king of the Canaanites is going to say, all right, let's all of us, we're going to adopt and we're going to believe in the, in the God of the Hebrews. No, no, no. They're not that. They still want to preserve what's theirs and keep their way of life and all that. For Rahab, though, it's different. For Rahab, it's more than simply fear. It's also faith that she's going to take action. She's going to provide lodging. She's going to provide safe passage. She says, that I know that your God is God. He truly is the God of the heavens above and the earth below. And why? Because God's grace inspires action, you know? Our faith is an actionable faith. It's not just a quiet faith that sits back and does nothing. Our faith is an actionable faith. And so we should be people who are inspired to act. I mean, are you seeing that the Hebrews, they're focused on safety, Right? All they were looking at prior to this was the size of the Canaanites, and for nearly 40 years, they toil around in disobedience because they're afraid and they're focusing on safety. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, finally meets some Hebrews whose God she has heard so much about, and in the face of death, she protects, she provides lodging for the Hebrew spies. See, God provides an actionable faith, an actionable faith, a faith that does something. Um, you know, you, uh, 
one of the things that she also realizes is that the land is theirs, right? That he, the Israelites, they're going to come in and they're going to possess the land because God has said so. And in the possessing of the land, the Canaanites are going to be wiped out, and she knows this. And so she enters into this, like, peace treaty with the spies. Like, hey, I've provided safe lodging for you. When you guys come and finally get your act together and are obedient to your God, and you guys take over the land, like, will you just make sure that I'm safe in my family? Like, will you do that? Can we? And, and so they make this agreement. Um, now, you might look at this and say, it seems kind of harsh on God's part that he's going to wipe out all the Canaanites. Seems maybe a little over the top. Maybe he doesn't need to wipe out every single last one of them. You need to understand this, that this promise of their destruction, it was given way back to Abraham, okay? It was, it was many, many, many years before this. And when he said that, he also gave this promise that he would wait until the full measure of their sin had come in and had been realized. And by this point, it had. These were a terribly wicked people, all right? They had pornographic statues all over their city. Uh, they considered child sacrifice an act of worship. They were sexually immoral. They were brutal. They were abusive. They were violent. These were incredibly wicked people. And at the same time, these were Rahab's people. But understand this, that amongst these incredibly wicked people, Rahab did not stand out as some, like, model of morality, all right? Like, the Canaanites aren't looking around and saying, you know what? Rahab. Now, there's someone we want all of our daughters to grow up and be just like her because she is a woman of character. No. Amongst these evil, wicked people, Rahab's at the bottom of the totem pole, all right? I mean, prostitution was more accepted then than it was today, but it was never celebrated. It's not like, oh, yeah, we want our leaders to be the prostitute. No, no, no. They're still at the bottom. They're still disrespected people that you just kind of look over, like, why would you do that kind of an attitude? This is Rahab. This is the person who all of a sudden God is using to provide safe lodging and safe passage, a, a, a woman of great faith. And so the spies say, say to Rahab, yeah, we'll remember. We'll, we'll remember what you've done. Here's what you need to do. When we come back, just hang this scarlet cord out your window. Now, does hanging the scarlet cord out the window save Rahab? No, not really. It really demonstrates that Rahab's already been saved, right? That she already trusts in the God of the Hebrews and in their word. And by the way, at this moment, now Rahab is living between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And Rahab, she's known a lot of men in her life, right? If you were to ask her all the men she's known, she probably couldn't give you all their names, She's known a lot of men. She's probably also had a lot of broken promises. She's probably heard a lot of things that just never amounted to anything. And now here there's two Hebrew guys who are telling her this. And it sounds almost too good to be true, right? Okay, the Hebrews, they're going to come in here and they're going to wipe everything out. I mean, the walls around Jericho are going to fall down. But me and my family are going to be safe because we have this scarlet cord hanging out the window. Like, can I really trust this? But she does. She does. She acts in faith, in belief, not just in that the Hebrews will keep their word, but it's a greater faith in the God of the Hebrews that she will be spared. And because of this, you know, you read, you flip over to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes referred to as the hall of faith, there's Rahab. 
I mean, she's mentioned right alongside of Abraham and Noah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Gideon and David and Samuel. Right there is Rahab the prostitute. Of all the people in human history that God could point to and say, this person is a model of faith. There's Rahab. Not even Joshua's in Hebrew chapter 11. But there's Rahab. The grace of God, it just drips off of her story. Then you flip over to James. James chapter 2, and in James chapter 2, James is a book about actionable faith. Faith without works is dead. And so, and James mentions two people who demonstrate this actionable faith. One is Abraham. He's commonly referred to as the father of the faith and the actions that he took. The other person, Rahab the prostitute. So the, the grace of God just drips off the page. But, but you also need to understand this, that almost every single time that Rahab is mentioned throughout the scriptures, she always has that title with her, you know? Almost every time you read her, it's Rahab the prostitute. In Hebrews 11, Rahab the prostitute. It almost seems unfair. You read through all the other people in Hebrews 11, and none of them are we told about their sin. It's almost like their sin has been expunged, you know? They've been wiped clean, but for Rahab, it's like her title, it just sticks to her. You go to James 2, and it's right there again. Rahab the prostitute. And it almost makes you wonder, like, God, why does it have to stick? You know, even this morning, right, if I were to ask you, okay, you know, what do you know about Rahab? Probably the first thing that might come to mind is she's a prostitute. You might not want to say it. You might, well, I need to think of something else, you know. I don't know if I want to lead with that one. Uh, but that, that's kind of where our mind goes. She's Rahab the prostitute. It's almost like her title. And we look at it, why, God? And I think the question is, what is God trying to teach us with this? That he always just allows that to be in her name. Well, when you get to Hebrews 11, um, every other person in Hebrews 11, their sin, at least the sin that we know about, all happened uh, after they became believers, okay? For Rahab, it was who she was when she met God. And so I think one of the things that God might be trying to teach us in just leaving this almost title with her is that while the grace of God uh, does away with the power of sin and does away with the presence of sin, it does not remove the reality of sin. And so when, God present, when, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, presents us as holy, holy and blameless to God the Father— we know that we won't look and say, you know what, I know it's because we were so good. You know, we just, man, we, we mastered that. We got really good. And because of our righteousness, because of our goodness, because of our holiness, here we are presented to the Father. No, no, we will know that it was all Jesus. That as we sang this morning, no, no, it was Calvary that covered it all. And what Jesus did for us on the cross and how he rose, that, that's why. And we'll know that even in heaven. I've told you this before, but is there anything man-made in heaven? Yes, the scars on Jesus, right? And you will look at that, and there's this constant reminder. The only reason why we are there is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we are all trophies of his grace. And so we rejoice that we are trophies of his grace. How do you live between the promise and the promised land? You rejoice that you are a trophy of God's grace. And for Rahab, here she is, a trophy of God's grace. 
It's on full display. And so when the spies leave and they go back and they report, because they've seen the faith of Rahab, all of a sudden they're, they're super confident. Yeah, we're going to take the land. No problem. It doesn't matter how big the Canaanites are because we know how big our God is now. Why do they have a bigger view of their God? Because they saw the faith of the prostitute Rahab. And it enlarged the faith that they had in God. It's incredible. Listen, I don't know about you. I would say when I was a kid, okay? Let me tell you this. It took no more of God's grace to save me as a child than it did for God to save Rahab as a prostitute in Canaan. Why? Because dead is dead. If you're guilty of breaking one commandment, you're guilty of them all, the Bible says. But the grace of God, it overwhelmed my sin. It overwhelmed the sin of Rahab. And by God's grace, the the name Rahab the prostitute is no longer a disgrace to her. It is a testimony to the glory and grace of our God that he can overcome all of that and reach into her life and use her in incredible ways. And because God's grace overwhelmed the sin of Rahab, he looked at her and he said, I adopt you as my daughter, Canaanite, Gentile woman, prostitute Rahab. You're my daughter. You're welcome in my family. You are dearly loved. I'm going to use you in incredible ways. You know, those ways really just are beginning here in Joshua chapter 2. As you continue to read her story and you, and, and you know where her story goes, then you understand that in that moment, as she's saying, hey, protect my family, it's not like she has a husband or kids or anything to protect. She's talking about her mom and dad, brothers, sisters, and nieces and nephews, right? But what happens? After she's rescued out of Jericho, she's going to meet a Hebrew man named Salmon, and she's going to get married to Salmon. Salmon and Rahab... They will have a son. His name is Boaz. Boaz will also meet a Gentile woman of faith named Ruth. Boaz and Ruth, they will have a son. His name, Obed. Obed will have a son. His name was Jesse. Jesse would have a son. His name was David, the great king of Israel. And you follow that genealogy down, and one day there was another son. His name is Jesus. You understand the DNA of the Canaanite prostitute Rahab runs through the veins of her Savior and ours, Jesus Christ. And it's all a testimony to the grace of our God. How do you live between the promise and the fulfillment of it? You allow faith to replace fear, be inspired to act, and you rejoice that we are all trophies of his amazing grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good to us that your grace would overwhelm our sin, that we could be adopted into your family, presented righteous by your Son before you one day, blameless. And God, in the here and now, you would choose to use us as your ambassadors to make disciples. God, may we uh, display your grace well. We need your help to do this. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the amazing grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.